You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, John chapter 6 is such a powerful chapter and really a hinge chapter in the Gospel of John. I, I say that it's a hinge chapter because... In John chapter 6, Jesus really reaches the zenith of his popularity. He will become so famous, especially up in the Galilean region, that the people are going to desire to make him into their king by force. And it's a hinge chapter because by the time you get to the end of John chapter 6, where Jesus is saying things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Many of even his own followers, people who were referred to as his disciples, not the 12, but learners, uh, many of his own disciples left him and abandoned him. Once he began teaching and saying things like this to the crowds. And so John chapter 6 is a wonderful pivot chapter in the gospel of John. And like I've said before, we're in a section in this gospel where we're seeing Jesus opposed, opposed by the religious leaders, opposed by the customs of the day. And John chapter 6 lays out in a very similar way to what we already discovered in John chapter 5. John 5 begins with a wonderful miracle. Jesus goes into the pool of Bethesda, finds a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years, says to him, do you want to be made well? The man says, I have no one to put me into the water. Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. And the man is healed. And eventually the religious leaders figure out that it was Jesus who had commanded this man to be healed on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus then begins to teach them. He says, listen, my father He works seven days a week. There has never been a moment since the world has been created where my father has not worked. He may have ceased creating after six days and rested on the seventh, instituting the first Sabbath. But that doesn't mean that he stopped working. No, he's been working ever since, you know, we were created. And so since I am... As my father and we are one, it only makes sense that I would be working on the Sabbath day as well. And Jesus went on to conclude that section, John chapter 5, with teaching about his equality with the father and the witnesses that testified of his equality with the father. John chapter 6 lays out in a very similar way. The miracle or miracles, plural, in John 6 start out the chapter. Uh, He will feed the 5,000. He will walk on water. He will calm the storm. He will take the boat and translate it to the seashore that they were traveling towards. He will work his miracles. And then the people will gather and pursue him and he will teach them controversial things about himself. And so it lays out in a very similar way. Way. And the problem, of course, that we're going to discover today in the first half of, the, of uh, John chapter 6 is simply that the people were following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Let's start out by reading the first couple of verses. It says in verse 1, After this, 
Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. There was a town on the western shore called Tiberias that one of the Herods had established and had named after Caesar Tiberius in honor of him. And over the years, the Sea of Galilee began to be also referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. Now, in verse 1, it starts out with, after this. And, you know, to the casual reader, it would seem as if, you know, immediately after Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and gave the great teaching on his equality with the Father. Immediately after that, he goes and feeds the 5,000. But this word after this is loaded with probably about six months of space in between chapter 5 and 6. During those six months, the other Gospels tell us that two significant events took place. Number one, Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two. Uh, They preached the kingdom. They uh, worked miracles. They had the power of God upon their lives. They went from town to town, city to city, and they came back rejoicing to Jesus as they reported the wonderful things that God had done through their lives. But the other significant thing that occurred during this six months, is that Herod had killed John the Baptist. He had arrested John the Baptist initially for speaking out against his unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. Uh, But finally, his wife, her daughter, seductively danced at his birthday party and in a drunken stupor, he promised, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. And she at the direction of her mother, asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and he gave it to her. And Jesus, in response to that news, began to mourn over the death of his cousin and his forerunner, John the Baptist. And so his disciples returned to him, and he took them to a solitary place for a season of rest, and we can only assume mourning. And a large, verse 2, crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This is important to our text. Notice, they followed Jesus because of the signs. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, as I've said before, when John mentions which feast and mentions them by name, uh, usually it has something to do with the background. In chapter 5, there was some feast, but we don't know which one. It had nothing to do with the miracle that Jesus was going to perform. But here, it's the Passover. And this is uh, much greater than just a time marker from John, although this does put us a year away from the cross. But the Passover was a special time in Israel. It was a time where the nationalistic zeal would be in full force. You know, remembering the time that God had delivered the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, their bondage in Egypt. And, you know, in this season at least, those nationalistic uh, sentiments would be really bubbling over as they thought about the Romans and considered and wished for a coming Messiah like Moses who would come and deliver the people of God from their oppression to the Romans. Just as Moses delivered the people of God from the oppression that they experienced 
under Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh and Egypt would be on their minds as they thought of Caesar and Rome. And so it was during this season that they followed him out into the wilderness. And lifting up his eyes then, verse 5, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, this is a fascinating question. John alone records for us that he asked Philip this question. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the closest town to this event. So it's as if he's saying, hey, look, you know where the local grocery stores are. Where can we find and buy enough food to feed all of these people? And verse 6, John adds a little editorial note that none of the other gospels record. When he says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, or day's wages, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, I love this little interaction between Jesus and Philip and his disciples for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love that here it says that Jesus said this to Philip. He approaches him and says, hey, where can we buy enough bread to feed all of these people? We know that it's 5,000 men, but if you counted women and children, who we can only assume are there as well, perhaps this crowd was near fifteen or 20,000 people strong. And so Jesus looks at Philip and says, hey man, where, where can we go to buy food to feed all these people? And he said this to test Philip. You know, I found that in my life, the Lord will present to me impossible challenges in order to expose what's going on inside of my heart. He'll present to me impossible challenges in order to sort of shed light on either my faith or my lack of faith. And so Jesus tests Philip in order to prove what is inside of Philip. But on the other hand, I think, in order to prove what is inside of Christ. It says, he himself knew what he would do. And I hope you're encouraged by that. The sovereignty of Jesus, he knows exactly what he's doing. And the same holds true today. In my life, in your life, the timeline of human history stands before him. He sees the beginning from the end. A thousand years to him is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. And in his perfect understanding and all of the information that is at his disposal, he makes perfect judgments and decisions. It's part of the lyric that we will sing in heaven. True and righteous are your judgments. We'll sing there. You know, when someone says, oh, when I get to heaven, I've got a bunch of questions that I'm going to ask God. <laughs> you know, the reality is you won't have any questions when you see him face to face. You'll simply say, every decision you made was good. Every decision that you made was right. I have no argument. If there's anybody that you'll be arguing with in heaven, it's going to be yourself. <laughs> I'll be arguing with myself. Nate, why didn't you have a stronger priority for the things of God? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? But none of us will question God himself. 
Jesus himself knew what he would do. And so Philip responds in verse 7 and says, Listen, even 200 days wages would not be enough to buy just a little bite for every one of these people. Now one of his disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now the other Gospels tell us that they sat down on the green grass in groups of 50 and 100. So there was an organized effort to feed these people. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. This is powerful. The other gospel writers might emphasize other parts of this feeding of the 5,000. And I should mention, of course, that this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is recorded in every single one of the gospels. But in this miracle, and in this record, in the Gospel of John, John places the emphasis on something very clear. He points out in verse 11 that Jesus gave them as much as they wanted. In verse 12, it says that they ate their fill. In verse 12, it also tells us that there were leftover fragments And in verse 13, it says that they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with those fragments. The whole idea that John is trying to emphasize is that with Jesus, notice the focus, it's on the bread. He's he's saying with Jesus, there is an abundance of bread. Now we don't get that message yet, but he's going to unfold it in the verses to come. Now, The people that were there, as they saw this, and you have to just sort of imagine what this was like. Imagine that there was 10, 15, 20,000 people, if you include the women and the children. And imagine being there that day. You know, Jesus all day long was teaching and healing the sick. The other gospels tell us he was walking from group to group, the disciples doing follow-up ministry and It would have been quite an effort to to bring the food from the hands of Jesus to all of these people. But imagine being there and and maybe looking, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 yards away and seeing Jesus standing there with something in his hand. What is it? Oh, it's bread. He's got bread in his hand and he blesses God for this meal. And then he begins to break it in his hands like he's crazy. Like he's really going to be able to feed all of these people with those five loaves and two fishes. But miraculously, the food keeps coming. It keeps coming out of his hand. There's a miraculous multiplication taking place in the hands of Christ. And their response after seeing all of this is found in verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Now, when they reference this prophet who is to come into the world, they're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses had promised and prophesied that there was a prophet coming like him in the future of the nation of Israel. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're seeing him miraculously providing bread. I'm sure they're thinking about Moses and how he miraculously brought the manna. And they're probably connecting the dots and thinking about how Moses miraculously led them out of Egypt. And they're thinking, we want to be miraculously led out of Rome or from out from under their thumb. And they decide that they want Jesus to be their king. And so when Jesus saw that they were about to make him king by force, he put the disciples in a boat, got away from the crowds and went up to the mountain uh, by himself. And when evening came, his disciples, verse 16, went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and were frightened. But he said to them in verse 20, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Another miracle uh, implied. And so the other Gospels tell us that they saw Jesus walking out. They had been straining at rowing all night long. These are the early morning hours. They see Jesus walking on the water, and they think he's a ghost. They're terrified. He climbs into the boat, the storm stops, and immediately the boat is translated to the seashore to which they were traveling. And I wanted to point out something that I think is very important at this section in the Gospel of John. Notice here the miracles that Jesus has performed in John chapter 5 and 6. John chapter 5, a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years gets healed. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, miraculously. And later in John chapter 6, what we just read, he walks on the water, calms the storm, and moves the boat miraculously. And what I wanted to point out is the special power of Christ in all three of those realms. And I think in one sense, Jesus is giving us a glimpse into his kingdom. I mean, have you ever looked at sickness and death and just felt like, Something is wrong. This isn't right. This isn't the way that it should be. (laughs) And and have you ever looked at hunger and famine? You know, whole entire countries that are starving to the point of death and, and looked at that and said, this isn't right. This isn't the way that it should be. And have you ever looked at the elements? Natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, whatever it is. Have you ever looked at them and said, this isn't right. This isn't the way that it should be. And I think in one sense, Jesus is giving us a little glimpse and a foretaste. And he's saying, ha ha, in my kingdom, in my kingdom, there will be no sickness. In my kingdom, there will be no hunger. And in my kingdom, there will be no natural disasters. In my kingdom, everything that you see here that is wrong will be set right. 
And uh, just a wonderful glimpse into the future coming kingdom of Jesus. Now on the next day, verse 22, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So everybody's confused. They didn't know that Jesus had walked across the lake, basically. And so they're confused about where he is. And people are traipsing all over the Sea of Galilee trying to find Jesus. And eventually they go to Capernaum because he's been there quite often. And when they found him, verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, in typical Christ-like form, Jesus is not going to answer their question. Uh, We've already seen that he is in this habit, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and now here, this crowd. They say, Lord, when did you get here? Or Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus is not going to answer when he arrived, but he's going to tell them why they were pursuing him. Jesus answered them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, this is fascinating. He says, you're not following me because you saw the signs. And the truth is, they hadn't. What they had seen were miracles. But those miracles to them were never signs. Signs are miracles that you then realize are pointing to a greater truth. And John, after all, has recorded these signs, he tells us in John 20, verse 30 and 31, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So these signs are supposed to point to a greater truth. Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. However, the people were not following Jesus because of the signs or because of that greater truth. No, they were following him merely, he says, because they ate their fill of the loaves. These people were worshipers of their belly. And Jesus said to them in verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, basically, listen, your priorities are all off. Don't be working so hard for food that perishes. You should be working hard for food that leads to eternal life. I think this speaks to us about having right priorities. Not being materialistic in nature but using materials for the greater good and glory and honor of God. Now, they responded in verse 28 and said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He said, you need to work for the food that doesn't perish. And so they say, well, what should we do to do the works of God? They were very confident in their own works and their own ability. And so Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You simply need to believe, to trust, 
in Christ and in the gospel. They, they, of course, wouldn't have understand this fully and completely at this moment, but this would be the message of the church, justification by faith. And this is an all-important message that needs to continually be preached. I've been surprised at times to talk to people who have been in the church for years. That when I ask them, what does a man need to do to be saved? They begin spouting off a long list of works. Attend church, pray a lot, go to small group, read your Bible. They begin listing all these things that a person must do to be saved. And they couldn't be more wrong. Jesus says, this is the singular work of God. Believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, verse 30, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so I find this hilarious because the people go back to Jesus and say, all right, well, you want us to believe in you. Okay, well, what sign will you perform so that we might believe in you? And then they just couldn't get over this whole bread thing. They loved it so much, the free bread. And so they throw out a suggestion. They say, hey, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness for a 40-year period of time. Maybe you could do something like that. And, uh, you know, obviously they're, they're basically saying, look, it's great that you fed the 5,000 once, but why don't you feed our whole nation miraculously for 40 years? But Jesus corrects them on a couple fronts. He said to them in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses. He says, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus looks at them and says, that manna was a picture of the real bread from heaven and you are looking at him. They, thinking in physical terms, in non-spiritual terms, say, give us this bread always, just like the woman at the well. And Jesus said to them, and I'll read this quickly, and we'll discuss this mostly in our next time together, but he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, Jesus gives the first of one of these great I am statements. God had referred to himself as the great I am in the Old Testament. And here Jesus now says, I am the bread of life. He'll say, I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He'll say all of these things in this gospel. But here he says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let me just say this in closing today. Jesus Christ wants to have a daily manna-like relationship with you. Go out every day and receive from him. Drink of him and be satisfied in him. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.